Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 23. It seems that those who read ahead always sigh when I say be seated, even though we normally stand for Scripture reading, uh, because you know it's a longer passage today, so we'll, we'll sit. I've learned to start using my word count rather than just simply say, oh, we're only going to cover a chapter today. That's not that long. Chapter 23 is a little bit longer, so we'll sit. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is God's word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, Because of the curse, the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me, and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. 
For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I dreamed, I had a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Who think to make my people forget my name <clears throat> by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my, uh, my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongue and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, What is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, You are the burden, and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. And as for the prophet, priest, or one of the people who says, The burden of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. Thus shall you say, Every one to his neighbor and every one to his brother, What has the Lord answered? Or what has the Lord spoken? But the burden of the Lord you shall mention no more, for the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you, or what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you have said these words, the burden of the Lord, when I sent to you saying, You shall not say the burden of the Lord, Therefore, behold, I will surely lift you up and cast you away from my presence, you and the city that I gave to you and your fathers, and I will bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we again ask for you to do the work that only you can do in our hearts and our minds. Would you speak to us in your word today and through it? We commit our hearts to you. We pray that you would make them soft to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we really started this particular message that Jeremiah delivers. He delivers first the message to the kings of Judah. And it was at Zedekiah, the current king, the last king of Judah, his invitation because he had asked for Jeremiah to make an appeal to the Lord. And we talked about how kind of naive that was of Zedekiah, having heard Jeremiah's prophecy all those years. 
The gist of Jeremiah's message to the kings, and he addressed the previous kings as well, was basically they had failed. They had failed to lead the people of God according to the ways of God. And not only had they failed to lead them, they actually led them away from the Lord. And so the next message then is the message to the spiritual leaders of Israel or of Judah. But as we see, they're not actually spiritual leaders at all. They're false prophets. And I use the quotes around the word prophets in the sermon title. We use quotes around our whole title, so they're actually single quotes, which don't make them stand out as much. But my point there was to say these aren't real prophets. These are false prophets. They're self-appointed prophets. They were not chosen by the Lord to bring his mess to, to be his messengers or to bring his message, his word to the Lord. They were self-appointed hucksters, so to speak. They were in it for themselves. They were seeking their own gain. They were seeking the power and the privilege that came with the role of prophet in the day of Judah. And so as we look at this, understand that's who he is addressing, these spiritual leaders, those who served in the temple. And Jeremiah not only calls them out for their facade, but he also tells them and the people and thus us today as we read this, the ways in which we can identify false prophets. But before we get to that, you notice there's this preface or this interjection. And I hinted at it last week. We looked at it very briefly at the end. Uh, it would have been great to deal with the whole message in one sermon, but we would have been here till dinner if we had done that last week. So it's, it is broken up. But this, this interjection that we have in between is this insertion of hope. And we've seen this happen in Jeremiah before, where this is a message of gloom and doom and judgment and so forth for the many sins of Judah over uh, so many years. And yet, at times, God pauses and stops and inserts these words of hope, this gospel uh, uh, whisper, so to speak, of, of, of a rescuer who was going to come. He has a plan, a plan of redemption. And this is another one of those gracious messages in the midst of it. It was to give them hope in the moment of their despair. As the remnant experienced the sins of the nation, as everyone would experience both the attack of Babylon, and if they lived through that, the pestilence that would follow, and if they lived through that, then they would be carried away into exile. And many who were faithful to God were in that midst. So this was an encouragement to them. And it's an encouragement for us today to see the sovereign plan of our God, which is carried out, that as we look backward, we can see he keeps all of his promises so that as we walk forward, and it's hard at times to know and believe and hold fast to this, but that he will keep his promises. He will finish what he has started. And so look in verse 1. We see the very first word, woe, and even, in, in, even though that's not a word we use every day in our language, we, we know what it means. It's a word of warning. And it catches us right away. It's, it's a strong word, and it was meant to be a strong word. And it's this message to the shepherds. Now, there's some discussion as to whether is this still the kings he's addressing before he gets to the prophets, or is this the beginning of the prophets? And I, I actually wonder if the word shepherds is used in this little interim to show that it's, it's both. It's all the leaders. They were, all had a shepherding role, but we won't, we won't lose ourselves on, on unpacking that. The warning is against the shepherds because they have led the sheep astray. They haven't done their job. They have failed the people. But even in the midst of this woe, this warning, this caution message, are words of comfort right from the very beginning. Notice how the Lord addresses his people. They are the sheep of my pasture. 
They are my people, he calls them. They are my flock, he, he says. Even though they have sinned greatly and even though they have sinned perpetually, he still calls them his own. He loves them. And in this message to the leaders of Judah, he explains that he has a rescue plan. Now, for the people of Jeremiah's day, this rescue plan, would they wouldn't have understood all that we see in it. Uh, they wouldn't have seen all of, of the message that it is. The hint, the, the, even the pointing to the righteous branch of David, they would have maybe said that was messianic, but they wouldn't understand it like we do on the other side of the cross. We look back and see clearly, oh, this is Jesus, right? This is the, in the line of David. They would have seen it as the rescue is coming after exile. We have to go into exile. We know the judgment has been, we're going to get carried off. We know that's going to happen, but God is going to restore us to the land. So they would have had a more singular understanding. But as we have seen again and again from our study in Genesis to our study in Revelation, uh, we've seen how prophecy in Scripture often has that dual meaning, where it foretells something that is about to happen, but it also it speaks of something further off, farther down the road. And typically, that something that is further off is the more significant, typically the richer, the more meaningful. We see this, for example, in the Messianic Psalms, most of which were written by David. David and the writers of the Psalms spoke of things that were actually happening to them in their moments in their lives. But then later we see the New Testament attribute some of those experiences, what we call Messianic Psalms, to the Messiah himself, Jesus, when he came to live on earth and suffer and die. And obviously the meaning of those words becomes much richer and fuller as they are fulfilled in Jesus. So this rescue plan that is being spoken of would come to pass when the people are brought back from exile, yet there is a greater rescue plan that is being spoken of here. A greater rescue plan that has eternal significance. We read in verse 2 that the leaders have scattered the flock of God. They, uh, he, he had told them to attend them. They have failed to attend them. So he says, now I'm going to attend you. If that doesn't sound <laughs> like some fatherly language, I don't know what is. So you, uh, do you remember flashbacks to your childhood when uh, your parents said, I'm going to attend to you, maybe different language, but that same message? That's, his, that's what he's saying to them. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to take care of things. But after he judges these men who have done such wickedness, the Lord will then gather his people, the remnant of his flock, as he calls them. And notice that the promise is not simply to call them back from Babylon. He will carry them back from all the countries where I have driven them, verse 3 says. And so this remnant has been sovereignly protected during the sin and the wickedness of the nation. They have been protected during the subsequent judgment that was brought upon Judah. They have been protected during the exile as they were carried off. And they are then protected and brought back according to the promise of God. If you read Nehemiah, if you read Ezra, you know the stories of the return from Babylon when the, the, the city and the temple and the walls were rebuilt. And when they are brought back then, God promises that they will be fruitful and they will multiply. He promises shepherds in verse 4 that will care for them. And look at the end of verse 4. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing. He will not lose one of those who are his. What a comfort. (laughs) 
It's the same language that Jesus uses in John 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God's sovereignty in salvation is not a new idea. It's not simply a New Testament idea. It's taught throughout the Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is taught in Scripture to give us comfort that our salvation is not in our hands, either to secure or to mess up. Salvation is solely of the Lord, and we thank Him for it because He will accomplish it. We're in His grip, and none shall go missing. But then in verse 5, the message expands further. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, was, he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah. There were uh, godly leaders who were raised up. But there was no king. There was no king. Zedekiah was the last one. And so the the, the people of God went through this period and they wanted a king. They knew that one had been promised who would come in the line of David. Well, here it is. The one who would come in the line of David according to the promise. And notice three things. He shall reign. He shall reign as king. So we know this is speaking of a king. He shall deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It speaks of Judah and and Israel both being saved, that there will be a uniting here. And his name given is the Lord is our righteousness. It's interesting when we look at the final words of David, which are recorded in 2 Samuel 23. One of the things that David says before he dies is, is this, For he, God, has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. David was a Presbyterian, clearly. Uh, for Only Presbyterians get that joke. But anyway, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? That word prosper there is from the same root as branch here. It means to sprout or to grow up, to prosper. And so here the voice of God speaks through his prophet Jeremiah of the Messiah who would come, who would sprout up the branch of righteousness to bring righteousness to you and to me. Even in the midst of this heartache that the people of Judah were experiencing, even in the midst of the sin and the suffering that was all around them, in the midst of the judgment and the exile that was to come, in a time that seems utterly hopeless for any good to come, God tells His people, trust me, I have a plan and I'm going to carry it out. I'm going to keep my promises. He says it's going to be so great, it is going to be on the level of the rescue from Egypt. Think of how the people of Israel spoke of the rescue from Egypt. They spoke of it, they still speak today of it in the Passover, right? It was the, it was the, the, the reference point for salvation. You know, what is being spoken of here is a salvation that would be greater than any rescue on earth because the rescuer is going to save God's people from sin and death and make them right before God. What a great comfort to the people at this time. What a great comfort this was to the people who would read this while they were in exile, waiting, waiting, waiting to be redeemed. What a great comfort this is to us in our own day that God keeps his promises. And then following that comes the message to the prophets, verses 9 and following. 
Uh, He now speaks to them who call themselves prophets. I've already mentioned that they are self-appointed prophets. They are not true prophets, but false prophets. They are not speaking for God. And it's pointed out in many different ways in Jeremiah's message to them. Now, Jeremiah starts with describing himself, that he is in some kind of physical turmoil. He's having these physiological symptoms to the stress. He, He describes himself as feeling drunk that he, he's foggy in his head, he's sluggish, he feels unbalanced, and he says it's because of the Lord and because of his holy words. But as we read further, we realize that it isn't, it isn't simply because of the words, but rather it's the reason for the words. The fact that God has had to speak this way to his people, it is because of their actions, their sins, that he shakes and trembles. These people have sinned greatly. They have sinned and adultery, both literally and spiritually. They have led the people to rebel against God in practicing idolatry through syncretism and through so many other forms of sin. The people were simply doing whatever pleased them. And when people do whatever pleases them, it leads to all kinds of injustice and oppression. Jeremiah has a lot to say about injustice we've seen already. And it's important to understand this. And I know that the, the whole idea and the concepts of justice are, are really misunderstood in our own day. And so that's why we need to look at Scripture of what it really teaches. But understand that the natural outworking of selfishness is injustice. If you're a parent, you know this. If you've never experienced this, sign up for the nursery. We need workers anyway. Um, but all you need to do is, is witness what we do as children. That when I find a way to get my way and get what I want, then I've stopped caring about what happens to other people, how it affects other people. The outworkings of selfish desires, doing what pleases ourselves, doing whatever we want, always leads to injustice and oppression because we stop caring about others. The sins, in the, prophet, uh, the sins of the prophets and the priests, though, wasn't limited to just out and about town. It was actually in the temple itself, Jeremiah points out in verse 11. The Lord tells them that because of this, they are on a slippery path and they're walking into further darkness. Have you ever been on a slippery path? My first, um, it was actually my second thought. I came back to my first thought because I still can't remember what was the name of the forest in The Princess Bride, but I use that too much anyway. So you remember the, the storyline there. I remember the hiking experience that I had when we, a group of us went hiking. We had, uh, it was a group from church. We had gone over, um, we, we had the opportunity. One of these members was in the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard takes good care of their people, and so it's kind of a morale booster. They could invite friends and, and family to, to ride on a Coast Guard cutter from the island of Oahu over to the island of Kauai. And we got two or three days over there, and then we'd ride back. It was a free ride. So a group of us from church went. And we had everything mapped out. We had some really good organizers, ladies that took charge and told us exactly where we were going and what we were doing. And we maximized every moment. And on the last day, we were going to go hike the Nepali Trail. But we only had so long before we had to be back to the ship. We had to be back like noon or whatever. So we, we figured out we could hike two hours in. That would give us two hours back and then an hour to get back to the ship. So we knew exactly how much time we had. So we take off. It's this beautiful trail. And then it does what it often does in Hawaii it ran, and Florida. 
or should in Florida, but we haven't had that this summer. It rains. And what happens to the soil? Well, it's it's that volcanic. It looks almost like Georgia red clay, and it is very clay-like. When it gets wet, it gets slippery. The problem on this particular trail, and the reason this trail is, is so gorgeous to hike, is that it's cut on the side of a mountain. So you look 100 feet up, or hundreds of feet up probably, and it's this lush green, you know, Hawaiian mountains, and you look down, and it's, you know, hundreds of feet down, but it's this crystal blue Pacific waters. The one thing you don't want on a trail like that is slippery, because you have nowhere to go. And so it begins raining, and as you can imagine, there was this urgency of getting back, because we couldn't miss the ship, and they made it really clear, like, you're not here you're on your own to get back, you know, and that would have been a big thing. So we're in this great hurry, and we're going back, and I can tell you stories later about those who did slip, but no one slipped off the trail. But the point of all of that is saying this is the picture that Jeremiah is, is ca- casting here of the false prophets. This is what they do. They set you up to fail by their message. They set up slippery slopes so that you go down them and you fall off into the darkness. Half-truths, deceptive words that go against God's revealed will. He then compares them to their siblings in Israel. It's interesting, he speaks of Israel as an unsavory thing. They prophesied according to, the, uh, uh, according to Baal. That sounds pretty terrible, but he calls it an unsavory thing in verse 13. And then he doubles down on Judah and calls it a horrible thing that they've done. This is who he's speaking to, to the nation of Judah. And he shows how much further down the slope the leaders of Judah have fallen. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. What is the whole point of leadership or government? Is to protect from evildoers. They do the opposite. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. Is any of this resonating with our own day? They have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of this, he will judge them. But the message goes further in verse 16. They, will, they fill the people with vain hope. They not only lead them astray, but they give them false hope. They concoct messages from their own imaginations. They tell sinners, it will be, it will be well with you. They tell those who follow their own hearts, no disaster shall come upon you. Again, if this doesn't sound familiar, I don't think we're paying attention. We have people in our secular culture who practice the religion of secular humanism who do such things with such messages. And, and, uh, you know, I couldn't help but think of the the whole monkeypox scare that is going on right now and what's happening. Where it's crystal clear from a New England Journal of of Medicine that says 98% of the cases of where it's coming from. And now the World Health Organization has echoed that 95% of where the cases have come from. But our our government, our media, our our news outlets and so forth will not speak of this. They won't say what it is. They won't call it an STD. Why? Because they have a religious zeal to secular humanism. They're actually doing great harm to those who are suffering from this horrible sickness by failing to speak the truth. How unloving and unkind this is. But lest we think such false prophets are only out there in the secular world, just like in Jeremiah's day, they're also among God's people. Bloggers, podcasters, pastors, authors, many men and women who are speaking peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're speaking like the false prophets did. They're telling people who are doing things that God despises that judgment will not come to them. 
Do what makes you feel good. Love wins. God would never send anyone to eternal damnation. Follow your heart. And just so we don't feel like it's too far away from us, even in our own circles, we have a number of people who are softening on the biblical standards, who are arguing for tolerance of sinful practices, who are putting forth systems of injustice that would harm the church. These are slippery slopes. Ironically, some of these people even argue that there are no slippery slopes. I think thou doth protest too much. Slippery slopes are real. And we need great wisdom to discern and to understand so that we are not led astray like the people of Judah. In verse 18, the question is asked of the false prophets, who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? This language of God's counsel is seen only a handful of times in Scripture. We encountered it in Revelation, for example. It's in both the Old and New Testament. And our imaginations of this kind of, or you know, at least for me, what is this, the counsel of God? You know, you kind of think of a big courtroom scene or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't, um, any insight we get from Scripture, the best picture that we get is of an angelic realm here, but, but I, I don't even want to go too far down that road. I, I really think this is anthropomorphic language, that language that condescends to help us understand what is going on of how God's work. God is all wise. He does not need the counsel of any angel or any, any man or any woman. He though certainly chooses to carry out his means through many angels, men, and women. So, what is the emphasis and what do we need to see here? Well, look at the end in verse 18. Who has paid attention to his word and listened? You want to know who's been in the counsel of God? Jeremiah had, the false prophets hadn't. How can you tell? Because they speak his word because they've listened to it. Those who spoke for the Lord were those who heard his word and listened. They spoke what he said, not what they thought, not what they thought would sell well or would work well among the people, not what felt good, not what my others might think sounded good. They spoke the word of God. And the evidence of speaking God's word is that people turn from their evil ways. Verse 22. In other words, it's not just lip service. People's desires change, their thoughts change, their actions change. I'm not talking about perfectionism here. I'm talking about progressive sanctification. That is, we are growing in Christ's likeness. That is the evidence that we are in and understanding and hearing God's word. It grows. These false prophets, on the other hand, were concocting their own messages. And they begin believing their own messages often happens. I think of uh, uh, examples in... Um, uh, the, the prosperity gospel, where you begin believing your own message and then you have to demonstrate the message. And you know, anyway, you know where that goes. And so God is, is going to make very clear to him, them, these false prophets, uh, when they say things like, I had this dream, God says, it's a lie. Verse 26, he mixes no bones about it. And then he implies that there's a test. Speak the dream. Let's see what happens. Verse 28. Let's see what happens when you say what's going to come about. What his emphasis focuses on is those who speak my word faithfully. Then in the final paragraph, it's the burden of the Lord. And if you, if you noticed as we read it, there were two things that probably stood out to you. One through the whole passage is the statement, declares the Lord. God repeated that phrase over and over again. Why? 
because Judah had not listened up to this point, and he's making it very, very clear to repeat by that phrase that Jeremiah is his messenger. He does the same thing in a more condensed sense with this burden of the Lord language. Evidently, the false prophets were going around and telling people, you know, sorry, I I know what God uh, is on God's heart. Let me tell you what's on God's heart. This is what you need to do. I, I understand the burden of the Lord. He turns that statement on them. He says, you want to know what the burden of the Lord is? You're the burden. You are. And I'm going to cast you off because you're telling my people lies. You're leading them astray. And then he says, don't even use the phrase burden of the Lord. Stop using it. We think of branding and marketing and what happens in in Christianity today of how phrases get used and so forth. It was no different back then. They had found the right branding technique. Burden of the Lord, that's what we're going to say. He says, stop using it. And then if you don't stop using it, I'm going to judge you for that. Well, they continue on, as we might imagine. And so he closes it in verse 40. I will bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. This warning, of course, serves us in our own day. There are many paths every day we, we get to choose. We, we get up, we make decisions constantly throughout our days. Which way will we go? What will we do? And some of those paths are indeed slippery paths that lead into darkness. Perilous paths that lead us to harm. And in the darkness, we will stumble to our own detriment if we take these paths. Now, some choices are obvious if we know anything of the God of the Bible. As we read his revealed will this morning uh, in, in, in the Ten Commandments, most of us don't have any arguments about what that says. We know right and wrong. This presents the moral law of God. We understand and we don't really disagree on those things. But there are more subtle things that often people do disagree on, and it's, it's a tactic that Satan has been using since the garden. Did God really say... That was the question that he put forth to Eve, and he's been doing it ever since. And what it causes in, in, our, in our minds in, and in our hearts is to think for a moment, well, maybe this is the right thing to do. Maybe this is the right way to go. Maybe it, it is, is, it's, it's what I should do. One of the most common messages that leads to this slippery slope begins with the love of God. Messages, uh, a God of love would never do this. God of love would never say that. You heard people argue for that before, often against what Scripture teaches. Or they propose, because God loves me, I know he wants me to be happy, and this or that would make me happy, so that's what I'm going to do, even though it's contrary to what he has said. We might get tripped up on these things for a moment as we hear people make these arguments, because we think to ourselves, well, yeah, God is love, and he, I mean, he, does, he wants us to be happy, right? Maybe we we hear the most quoted verse of Scripture from people who hate God. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Even the atheists know and use that verse. Uh, We hear that, and so we think to ourselves, well, I can't say anything. That would be unloving, or it would be harsh, or or whatever. I, I even think sometimes we get caught up on sentimental phrases that aren't even in Scripture, and we think they are. Like, God helps those who help themselves. My point in saying all of this is that they are half-truths and deceptive words and false ideologies that lead us astray. And I'm not saying this to scare us or to to work us up into any kind. It's just simply we need to know God's Word. The answer is we need to know what He said so that when we hear these things, when we're faced with the choices, the fork in the road of which path to take, we know which way to go. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God has given us his word that we might see. There are dozens and dozens of verses in Scripture in Psalm 119 alone, where that verse comes from, that speak to this truth, that God's word is light. It leads us into understanding and it bears forth the fruit of repentance and faith. Don't miss that. And let me just pause and say this, that you know, sometimes when, when I think of that, and I think, where, where is my growth? Where is that? I mean, I'm, I'm in the Word. It feels dry. I'm not, nothing makes, I'm not, nothing's exciting me. Nothing's moving me. There are times we all have those seasons. Pray. Ask God to work in your heart as you read His Word. Um, I, I was talking this week with, with uh, some folks about, you know, the genealogies. I used to always skip the genealogies because they're so boring. But I've learned to really appreciate the genealogies. Do you know why? Because the hope that's found in the genealogies, that God works through messed up people and messed up families and perpetual sin, and he still carries out his plan and completes his promises. And the the genealogies are the proof of that. Anyway, we need his word for light to our path. It bears fruit in repentance. It takes us in, it takes that which takes us into the darkness and away from Christ's likeness is contrary to his word, but his word gives us light for our benefit, for our good. Now, in judgment, his word, when, 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 um, when we fail to trust him, his word works like a hammer. His word works like fire. Verse 29 spoke to that. We didn't have time to, to drill down there. But, but when we are not believing, or for the unbeliever, there is a weight. Clayton mentioned this this morning. There's a weight of the word that we should feel. But as we trust him, his word becomes gentle and nourishes us with goodness and mercy and our cups overflow. The unbeliever needs to feel the weight of the word. Because judgment is real and is coming, just as it was for Judah in Jeremiah's day. And I would say that when we walk in sin as believers, we need to feel the weight of the word. But God's intention is that it become nourishing and blessing as we trust him. The one who has faith firmly placed in Yahweh, the words are not harmful. The words are filled with hope because a rescuer is coming. They were looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah. We look backward in faith to the Messiah has come. Jesus is that promised rescuer. He is the Savior who has come, the Redeemer of all who will trust in him. So when you think of judgment, which can feel heavy, or when you see the culture around us sliding further into wickedness, or even when you see leaders in the church slipping into compromise, fix your eyes on Jesus, trust him and know his word. Look deeply into his word that it may bring light to your path and steady your feet on the sure rock that is him. Trust his word that is true, knowing that he keeps his promises and will bring you safely through the gale force winds and the storms of life. Know and meditate on his word that refreshes your weariness In the desert days of suffering, let it revive your tired heart. His word is good and beautiful because he is good and beautiful. His word is trustworthy because he is always faithful. His word gives life and strength just as the very universe came into existence by the power of his word. That is his word. So do not forsake it or take it for granted. Don't treat God's word as insignificant in your life. 
May we speak as the psalmist did. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father, we need and we are thankful for your word. We thank you that it is a light unto our path, that it shows us the way in which to go. It helps us to see and understand. But more importantly, your word gives us hope because your word speaks to us the truth of the gospel, that in a world broken and wrecked by the fall, there is a rescuer who has come, who is coming again to make all things right, to finish what you've started, to complete the task. And Lord, we get discouraged and dismayed in our lives because of circumstances and the weight of being, living, existing, not only in a fallen world, but even in our own lives, we still wrestle with sin. Lord, we, we feel weighted down, and so we need the hope of the gospel. Would you refresh our hearts with that hope today? Help us to fix our eyes squarely on Jesus to hear and to meditate, to know his word, that we might be encouraged to press on and press forward, to be beacons of light to others, to demonstrate the love of Christ that has been poured out into our hearts, that it might pour out of us into the lives of others, that they too might see and ask for reasons of the hope within, that we might speak of that hope. Lord, would you help this? To, to, to flesh itself out in our lives. Would you strengthen and encourage us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.